I'm going to say a few statements in the first person about myself, but I, I want you to see if you can agree with me with, with what I'm saying. Here's, here's what hit me as I was singing that song. My life is important to me. I, I value it. My legacy is important to me. I value it. The, me making a difference in this world is important to me. I value it. And here's what I think God invites us to say. This is what I felt like the Lord was calling me to say. Those things are so important to me that I dare not trust them to me. I want to hand those to someone who can do something with them that I can't do. I want to give myself to someone who can take what I am and make it meaningful and make it useful to others. And so if you're, if you, if you kind of say ditto, I agree. I want to pray that right now, okay? But I want you to pray it, and I'm going to pray it. I want you to, I want you to say this to the Lord as I say this to the Lord. So let's pray. Lord, the truth is, is that we, we do want to matter. We don't want to waste our lives. We do want to leave a mark, a legacy. And I think you're inviting us to see right now is that's okay but if we are wise we'll understand that we Lord don't have the wisdom the power the grace to make anything of ourselves so we would just like this morning God as your spirit allows as your as your spirit gives us faith to say this and mean it we would just like to give ourselves to you because we recognize that you, O Lord, are the most trustworthy person we could ever give anything to. And we recognize, Lord, that you turn just a seed, a mustard seed of faith into mountain-moving consequence. So we just, just in our hearts, Lord, step into that space that Isaiah occupied in chapter 6 and we just lift our hand humbly and meekly with no sense of self-importance and just say here am I Lord send me use my ransom life in any way you choose and let my song forever be my only hope is you thank you Lord in Jesus name we pray amen we'll dismiss our kids to children's ministry and you can be seated Follow the uh, air traffic controller back there. With this, you don't have any cones, John. Well, you know, we we set aside our normal practice regarding membership recognition is to set aside a Sunday and recognize a whole bunch of members at one time and so forth. And that's worked, I think, well for us in the past. But as the one who tries to schedule and manage all of that, it might just be beyond my administrative grasp to pull that off. Growing up in my home churches, growing up, we would just recognize members as they were ready to become members. And so that would be, you know, on any given Sunday, recognizing some members. And so I want to propose that we do that as an experiment for a while, because we just have a number of families that are sort of like on the runway, but at different times and different availabilities and so forth. 
And so I'd like to try, maybe through the spring, is to just recognize people as they are ready to become members. And then periodically, because I do think reading the membership covenant is a really good practice, we'll read that periodically. So today I want to recognize one family, the Montoya family. You guys picked the worst spot to sit in. <laughs> Would you stand up? Uh, let's welcome Katie and Mike Montoya to the Providence family. We're so glad that you're going to co-labor with us, and we just want to extend our welcome to you. And you can pretend that this potluck is only for you. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much, guys. Uh, related to the, the potluck, we do have a potluck afterward. You know, we always have plenty of food, so um, I'll just not eat if we run out, and that'll save a bunch. So uh, uh, you're more than welcome to come. And let me just give you some instructions now so that we can proceed into that, you know, and that flows well. Um, what we'll want to do, whoever can get back there the quickest, is just pull those two tables right into the middle of the coffee area so that people can serve on both sides. There are plates and forks and waters and all sorts of things like that already set up for you. And then when you get your food, if you would go through the chapel and come back around that way, we won't get this kind of cross-clog that we've had before. And if you don't know where the chapel is, you're exempt from this rule. Most of you do. If you don't, it's fine. Okay, with that, let's move into our message today. If you'll open your Bibles to the book of Proverbs, chapter 22. Proverbs, chapter 22, we're going to be reading... Our text today will be from verse 2, but let me introduce it by reminding you of something Jesus said in Matthew 5. He said, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light in all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We're going to talk today about the good work that the early church was known for, perhaps above any other. And that is related or found in our text in Proverbs 22.2. The rich and the poor meet together. The Lord is the maker of them all. But this is what the early church exemplified. This verse is what the early church exemplified. Not only that the poor and the rich met together, for worship, which was indeed kind of revolutionary and actually required a whole bunch of sorting out in the epistles as people handled what was for them a brand new cultural phenomenon, the rich and the poor meeting together. But the underlying idea that all people are of equal value because all people have been created by God, that was the secret sauce, if you say, of the early church. You know, a short time after the death of Constantine, who I think you might say was the first Christian king after the cross, a, a new emperor came in, and his name was Julian. He was actually a nephew of Constantine, and history knows him as Julian the Apostate because he sought to return Rome to its pagan roots. Julian the Apostate is called Julian the Apostate because he wanted to pivot Rome away from the Christianity that Constantine had established and back to the pagan history. Now, we have some of Julian's letters, and in one of his letters, he is writing to a pagan priest who is still serving as a priest in a pagan temple, and he is offering this pagan priest instructions 
on how they should behave in order to help facilitate this Roman reformation, this Roman revival back to paganism. And here's some of what he wrote. We ought then to share our money with all people, but more generously with the good and with the helpless and poor so as to suffice for their need. And I will assert, even though it be paradoxical to say so, that it would be a pious act to share our clothes and food even with the wicked. For it is to the humanity in a person that we give and not their moral character. Hence I think that even those who are shut up in prison have a right to the same sort of care, since this kind of philanthropy will not hinder justice. For it is disgraceful that when no Jew ever has to beg, and the impious Galileans, those are the Christians, support not only their own poor, but ours as well. All men see our people lack aid from us. Now, here we see already the power that King Jesus is displaying and wielding in the politics of the day. Julian loathes Christianity. He thinks, as many Romans did, if you ever read The City of God by Augustine, this is the very issue at hand, he believes that as Rome has pivoted to Christianity, it has angered the gods and that all of Rome's downfall is due to their lack of worship of the traditional gods. So Julian is not a fan of the whole Jesus stuff. He calls Christians the impious Galileans. But what is interesting that you might miss is that he proposes in order to turn, return Rome to its pagan past, they must adopt this new thing that Christians are doing, namely treating people as valuable regardless of their moral state, regardless of their economic state, and so on and so forth. So he already at this point in his effort to return the world that he rules back to paganism, he is forced, if he's going to be successful, which he was not, he was forced to incorporate this key Christian understanding we find in our text in Proverbs 22.2. Now, there are many Julians in the world today. There are many Julians in the world today. This is exactly where we find ourselves today. You won't find, you won't find many people in the Western world who would disagree with the statement that all people have equal worth. Fair? You would not find many people who would overtly disagree with that statement. Or to put it in Jeffersonian term, terms, all people seem to hold these truths to be self-evident. That all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You won't find people today who would disagree with the statement, all men are created equal. But we have a problem. The second part of Jefferson's statement is spot on. All men are created equal. The first part, that this is a self-evident truth, well, that's blasphemy. It's profound error, and in fact, it's in some ways the Declaration of Independence in stating that was a Declaration of Independence from Christ. I only say that in this sense. It is not. It is simply not self-evident that all men are created equal. To know that all men are created equal requires something more 
than mere external evidence. And I think it's an important point that I want to bring to you this morning. You might know that Jefferson's original draft did not include that phrase. His original draft did not include the phrase, we hold these truths to be self-evident. His original draft was, we hold these truths to be sacred and undeniable, that all men are created equal. And Franklin persuaded him to move away from the word sacred to into a sort of enlightenment uh, understanding that this is just a self-evident truth, that men are created equal. But as I said, it is not self-evident. And one of the main ideas I want to put forward for you today is that this idea that is essential to harmony in your homes, in our communities, in our country, this idea of human equality is not self-evident and can only be found when we submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and the authority of his scriptures. I started thinking this week about what are some Bible ideas that are kind of hard to believe, some things the Bible says that are true that are kind of hard to believe. And I was thinking about like complementarianism, this idea that God created men and women to be complementary to each other. It's like a lot of people struggle with that one. But the truth is that's not so difficult because you simply observe in nature the differences, the biological differences, the different characteristics, and see that those things are complementary. And so it's like, yeah, I mean, it's kind of hard to believe, I suppose, for someone, but actually there's plenty of evidence just in creation that that is so. Even the existence of God. A lot of people struggle with, like, how can I be sure God exists? But here again, you don't need only scripture to know that God exists. Paul says in Romans 1, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and things that have been made. And so there are a lot of truths that God puts forward to us that we can kind of say, like, yeah, he's saying this in scripture, but I can also see it playing out in the real world. Human equality is not one of those things. Just to be very frank with you, this is going to sound uh, blasphemous in some respects to our democratic, secular democratic sensibilities. The equality of human beings is not self-evident. God says it's true, but when we look around, that is not what we see. That's the idea in Proverbs 22, too. It's a very beautiful, poetic idea. You see a poor man and a rich man standing next to each other. And what you can see screams inequality. For one is better dressed than the other. One has more power and security than the other. One is extremely tired from subsistence, dependent every day just to eke out enough calories to make it to the other. And this one over here is living his best life now. When you look at the image, the beginning of this proverb, the rich and the poor meet together, you do not self-evidently see equality. Where does the equality come from? The second half of the verse. The part that you can't physically see. And that is that God is the maker of them all. That's a truth God tells you is true, but is not obviously self-evident. You see, what I'm trying to get you to understand is that all of the weight of your senses, 
all of the weight of your so-called rational mind is pushing you to not believe in equality. For instance, an unborn baby does not appear to have the same worth as a 22-year-old woman. With the naked eye, in human reason, in a self-evidentiary kind of way, those two things do not appear to be of equal value. A young man with severe mental disabilities does not appear to have the same worth as a professional athlete. An elderly woman does not appear to have equal worth as a Navy SEAL. There is nothing self-evident about human equality. Now, I want you to think of this verse, the phrase poor and rich, as sort of stand-ins for actually just all of the disparity we see in the world. Don't think only in terms of economic poverty and wealth. Think disparity. Think visible inequality. For instance, there are people who are poor in physical attractiveness, and there are people who are rich in physical attractiveness. There are people who are poor in intelligence, and there are people who are rich in intelligence. There are people who are poor in physical strength and those who are rich in physical strength. There are people who are poor in self-discipline and those who are rich in self-discipline. There are people who are poor in education and those who are rich in education. There are people who are poor in health and people who are rich in health. There are people who are poor in social skills and people who are rich in social skills. There are people who are poor in natural virtue and people who are wealthy in natural virtue. There are people who are poor in logical thinking and there are people who are wealthy in logical thinking. There are people who are poor in power, and there are people who are rich in power, and there are people who are poor in their amount of contribution to society, and there are people who are rich in their contribution to society. So when you look at the verse, don't think rich and poor of money. No. Think two people that appear to your naked eye to not be equal. And where does the idea of equality come from in the text? Well, let's Let's think about this. I want to add some cold, unsentimental truth to this observation. God has not distributed the qualities I have just mentioned equally across all people. And he doesn't make up always for lack in one area with riches in another. Meaning he doesn't always give the dumb people good looks or he doesn't always give the ugly person intelligence. The truth is, and we have to deal with things at the basement level of thinking, if we are going to be genuine possessors and proclaimers of this glorious and important doctrine that all people are equal, we've got to go all the way down to the foundation. And here's the truth. There are plenty of unintelligent, unattractive, awkward, poor, non-virtuous, and physically weak people in the world. They've got it all. So let's not delude ourselves in saying, well, yeah, you, you know, this person is lacking in this, but they have this quality, or they're lacking in this, but they're lacking. No, some people do not have very many of these things. And here's another sad note. As I age, I'm losing all of these. And actually, as you begin your life, you are without many of these, especially when you're invisible in a womb. 
So if we rely on self-evident equality, we do not have any understanding of equality. Ideas, it turns out, are just like individuals. The whole vine and branches thing applies there too. What do I mean by that? Well, you remember how we looked at that a while back and Jesus said in John, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. The only value we have is our connection to Christ. And, so, so, and likewise, the only value ideas have is their connection to Christ. Now, what happens when a branch is connected to its source? It is flexible, it is healthy, and it bears fruit. But what happens when the branch is disconnected from its source? It becomes brittle, and it does not produce fruit. Now, we know this because Jesus has taught us to think of, it, of, of people in this respect, and we hopefully have some understanding of how important it is for us to remain connected to Christ. But I think I need to make it clear that ideas are just like individuals. You can take an idea which Jesus has taught us and separate it from Jesus, and the idea itself becomes brittle and incapable of producing the fruit. And so any idea of human equality separated from Jesus, from real vital relationship with Jesus, from at the very least a kind of because the Bible tells me so dependency on Jesus, it's all just a mirage. It isn't real. It can't be real. So while many people profess a platitude that all people are created equal, when you look under the surface and see that that idea is connected to nothing, well, you can keep looking and find all kinds of gross things related to this seemingly beautiful idea. And it isn't because the idea is bad. The idea is true. It's because the branch has been removed from the life. Years ago, I had an opportunity to be in the Jefferson Memorial on a beautiful summer evening in Washington, D.C., just an absolutely beautiful look, a beautiful sight. On the Northwest Wall, which I think is a nod to the role that westward expansion played in the Civil War and so on and so forth, but on the Northwest Wall, this phrase is written, and I didn't know this until I was there and read it. It's the phrase is, nothing is more certainly written in the book of fate than that these people are to be free. Nothing is more certainly written in the book of fate than that these people are to be free. And I thought, oh my goodness, that's a pretty powerful statement. Well, what, what do you do when you read a pretty powerful statement plastered up on a wall? You go home and Google it. I was like, how is that statement compatible with what we know Jefferson's own life was about in relationship to slaves and so on and so forth? It's like, how does this work? What was he thinking? So I Googled it, and I found the original letter that he wrote containing that phrase. And sure enough, the first line of that paragraph in the letter that he wrote says, nothing is more certainly written in the book of fate than that these people are to be free. But there's a sentence that follows. And that sentence is, nor is it less certain that these two races, equally free, cannot live in the same government. 
Nature, habit, opinion has drawn indelible lines of distinction between them. Friends, this is what happens when someone has human equality separated from Christ. You explore it a little further and you find gross, creepy, weird. In this case, in case you didn't understand the meaning of his quote, it's clear that these people are to be free. It's also clear they can't be free here. When we, we, I'm going to hammer some other people, when any person grabs a teaching of Jesus and turns it into a platitude and separates it from Christ, this is what we get. This is what we get. This is not a self-evident truth. Now, I want to give you a couple more examples of this sort of thing. In our town, the largest Methodist church in our town has walked away from the Bible's clear teaching on homosexuality, and they have done so for the sake of equality. Also in our town, one of the largest conservative Presbyterian churches has walked away from the Bible's clear prohibition against female clergy, and they've done that for the sake of equality. Now, I want to be clear about something. What these people do not realize is that you can't do that for one simple reason. The only reason we have a doctrine of equality is because God's word says so. That's the only thing we've got that points us in this direction. It's an idea unparalleled. It's an idea you do not even see in ancient society. It's a relatively new idea. We're still stumbling around trying to figure out how to put it into action. But you remove God's word, which is the only thing that says this thing, this idea. It's the only thing that presents this idea. You remove God's word, the authority, the centrality, and sufficiency of God's word for the sake of equality. What you will do every single time is you will open the door to the old world that was dominated by power. As soon as you remove the centrality of scripture, holding people's heart in place, saying, I believe all humans are created equal, not because I see it, but because God says it. When you remove when God says it, because God says it, when you remove that, if it's on something else, you have removed the only reason that exists to believe that all men are created equal. So I just want to make a milkshake bet. In the end, we will see that people like this in their act of so-called compassion and equality will only contribute to future inequality. They are acting short-sightedly and they will have to give an account for what is at best ineptitude in understanding where ideas actually come from. Some of you know who Neville Chamberlain is. That is these pastors, only it's much worse because the, on, the, on the opposite side of Neville Chamberlain in the spiritual realm is someone far worse than who was on the opposite side of Neville Chamberlain in the physical realm. And you can Google Neville Chamberlain later. Don't do it now. And while I'm just thrashing people, let me add another one. We won't, we'll, we'll be moving on very quickly. I just want to talk about materialistic Darwinism for a second and just state the obvious. 
Human equality is not compatible with Darwinistic materiality. You cannot fit the square peg of survival of the fittest in the round hole of all people are equal. It's not possible. And lots of people will say they believe it, they believe both things, and it's just not possible. Now, last thing about others and then on to us. When a branch is broken from a tree, it's good for two things, more or less. To start fires and beat people. When you separate a truth from God, from the goodness and love of Jesus, it is good to start fires and hurt people. That's, that's, what, that's what it's used for. And so I want to just present to you this phrase, and I want you to look for it and be aware of it, and that is what I would call the weaponization of equality. The weaponization of equality. You might wonder, how is it possible that people can shame, cancel, berate others in the name of equality? If you've wondered that, I think I've just explained how that works. Now let's think about us. I did not go to the great length of saying that equality is not self-evident so that I could point to other people. I did it so that you would understand what's actually going to happen in your heart if you are not connected to the vitality of Jesus Christ. I did not bring it up. That was just a, a, a fun side trip. Not really that fun. I don't, I don't like stirring the pot, believe it or not. I want you to understand that you will... If you're not walking in the spirit, not believe that all men are created equal. And you will start living that way. And you're probably too polite to say it out loud. It'll just show up in your heart and show up in your behaviors. You need to understand that if in the flesh, if you're walking in the flesh, I think of Newton's first law of motion. So we've got, we've got this body moving this direction. And that is you in your flesh. And you in your flesh is always going to move towards self-righteousness, tribalism, judgmentalism, which my Word document says is not a real word. Judgmentalism. You think I should add that? You think it's good enough? Like, I, I feel like it's a real word. In your flesh, you are a body moving toward pride, self-righteousness, judgmentalism, and so on and so forth. You need an opposite force to come in that is stronger than the momentum of your own flesh and push you in the direction of the love of Christ. You will not live as you should live, believing that the Lord is the maker of them all. You will not live as you should live unless you are seeking God's help in showing you what you cannot see with your own eyes. Here's the daily experience of most of us. Before 10 a.m., most of us will be reminded that not all drivers are equally good at driving. <laughs> and before noon, we will remember that not all people are equally nice. And around 2 p.m., we'll discover or be reminded that not all people are equally committed to hard work. And then as we meet our boss toward the end of the day, some of us will be reminded that not all people are equally intelligent. Your whole life sensory in your flesh 
understanding of this world is inequality. That's all you can see. You are seeing the front end of the Proverbs with your, with the, of Proverbs 22-2 with your naked eye. What you are seeing with your naked eye is the rich and the poor in a wide variety of contexts. Logic, self-discipline, attractiveness, health. That's what you are observing with your naked eye. The truth of this proverb, that the Lord is the maker of them all, and that is why everyone has equal value, because they have the equal creator. God was just as busy knitting the poor person in the womb than as he was the rich person, just as diligent, just as careful, just as interested, just as devoted. None of that is what you can see. It is all a faith proposition. And so as your faith goes so goes your attitude toward other people. As your faith goes, so goes your patience. As your faith goes, so goes your grace. As your, patient, as your faith goes, so goes your foregoing of self-righteousness. If your faith is strong, you will see people who do not present themselves as equally valuable as equally valuable because your faith is receiving information from God that corrects what your eyes are observing. But if you're weak in faith, and friends, this is my favorite barometer to know where my heart is. Um, I'm a, I don't want to admit this. Uh, here's, here's how I know when I'm not right. I will start walking in such judgment toward other people. I will just, I will just be trying people in the courtroom of my heart over and over and over again and it's the greatest indicator to me, I am not where I need to be with the Lord. I'm walking in the flesh right now because what I'm doing is I'm using my senses and not the Holy Spirit's perspective. Now, what I think is very important before we conclude is to understand this. This truth in Proverbs 22.2 is not enough. The information that God is the maker of all and therefore all have equal value before him. That information is not enough. And let me illustrate it by saying this. The Jews had this proverb for a very long time. And they also, all of the Jewish men, would rise up in the morning for their morning prayers and start their morning prayers with this phrase. I thank you, God, that you did not make me a woman, a Gentile, or a slave. They had this verse for quite some time, folks. And it seemed to them not incompatible with that morning prayer. This idea, again, the idea is not enough. There has to be supernatural, Christological vitality behind the idea. Because pride and self-righteousness is the natural trajectory of the human heart. And we need some kind of Newtonian act force to act upon what we would normally, where we would normally go. And I want to just close by telling you about one of those people. And his name is Paul. In 2 Corinthians 5.16, Paul says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Uh, the New International Version says, So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. 
the Amplified, with all of its many commas, says, So from now on, we regard no one from a human point of view according to worldly standards and values. This verse, 2 Corinthians 5, uh, is, was it 19? 16. This verse is showing you a man who has repented of self-evident perception. He is saying, I no longer look at people. This is, what we want to, this is where we want to go, where he's at, where we want to wind up. I no longer look at people measuring their status based on all of those markers that I listed previously. I no longer regard men according to the flesh. Now, I want you to just remember, Paul began his adulthood as a Pharisee, and he tells us elsewhere that if any man has reason for self-righteousness, he has more. If any man has reason for self-righteousness, for boasting in the flesh, he has more. And at the time, during his pre-conversion days, he thought he was accumulating many good ideas about God. But what he was doing, he realized later, was he was actually gathering up dead sticks that were entirely cut off from the life of God. And he, like so many before and after, were using those sticks as weapons. So Paul was a boastful man. He walked around with a latent sense of superiority. And that superiority was not based on false information. It was based on true information. He was wealthy in many of the categories I previously described. He was the intellectual superior in almost every room he ever walked into. He was the zealous superior of most men that he spent time with. He was the educated superior of most men that he spent time with. He was probably always both the youngest and the smartest man in every room. And that's not a recipe for pride or anything, is it? Dumb young people are prideful enough. I can't imagine a smart young. <laughs> Paul would have prayed in the morning as a Pharisee, I thank you, God, that you did not make me a woman, a Gentile, or a slave. And in 2 Corinthians 5.16, he says that he once looked down on Jesus Christ himself. This is how superior he was. He probably saw Jesus as a crutch for weak people. He probably saw Jesus as an extra, an add-on, something not essential. Or he saw Jesus as even worse than that, as someone who couldn't even prevent himself from being crucified. And most certainly, by no means a king, which his believers claimed him to be. And then... Paul got saved. Paul got saved. There's no other way to say it. You got to add like three A's to the saved. It was such a big saved. Saved. Paul got saved. What happened? He encountered Jesus Christ. And he encountered someone who spoke up on behalf of the very people Paul was beating with his truth sticks and said, why do you persecute me? And a new love filled Paul's heart 
A love, he says in various places, is a love that controls him, compels him. He tells the church, I am filled with the very affections of Christ for you. I don't have time to support the claim right now, but I believe that Jesus turned what might have been the biggest self-righteous dork in that time into the single greatest champion of human equality of all time, apart from Jesus Christ himself. He turned this man who would arise and say, thank you, God, that you did not make me a woman, a Gentile, or a slave. He turned that man into someone who in Galatians 27 is about ready to smack the Galatians for their refusal to buy in to this beautiful truth that all men are equal in Christ. And he says, For as many of you were baptized into Christ and have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. If you have three minutes today, read the book of Philemon. It takes about three minutes to read and in Philemon, Paul writes a letter to this man who is a slave owner named Philemon. And in that letter, the context or the purpose of that letter is to tell this slave owner that one of his slaves has fled and ran into Paul in another city. And that through the gospel, this slave had come to Christ. And Paul says early on in the letter, I could just command you to do this and you would have to. That's the authority I have. But he says, I want to appeal to you and your love. He says, he says to Philemon, treat this man not as a slave, but as a brother. I know the patience of Paul. The patience of Paul made me cry this morning as I thought of how many times the very people he was willing to die for would turn on him and despise him and think of themselves as better than him. And he did not fall for any of it. He remained in grace, in mercy, in patience, and he looked at those darn Corinthians as being of equal value as he himself was to God, and it propelled him into pastoral patience. He was humble around his intellectual inferiors, around his spiritual inferiors, and God got a hold of him when this became true, and this is why this doctrine matters so much, because if God can make you believe that everybody matters the same, you will give your life to serve people. And you won't require them to meet a certain bar of worthiness before you do it. And when you lay down your life for people without requiring them to meet a certain bar of worthiness, they are changed. Because that's what the gospel teaches. That's what the gospel is. Paul went from being a man full of himself to a man full of Christ. And it was this very thing that made him able not to simply spout a platitude, but to embody this teaching that the Bible puts forth, that all men are created equal. What about you? What are you full of? I want you to know that Christians are not safe from self-righteousness or favoritism. 
when you read the New Testament, you will find that this is one of the main issues that the pastors of these local churches had to deal with, with the Christians in those local churches, was no one was above or beyond falling into the old habits of favoritism and superiority and so forth. So this is a truth that you can see in the scriptures, but it is not a truth you can act on and live unless you are full of Christ. The main idea of Proverbs 22.2 is don't look at the poor man with reproach. God made him. And don't look at the rich man with reverence. God made him. I suppose the main thing I've added to this conversation is to remind you that you should not look at rich and poor in the Bible as mere financial categories. The truth is, is that you are confronted on a daily basis with an unequal distribution of all sorts of valuable things in people. And it is human nature to notice those things and to start making hierarchies, structures of value. And I think the second idea is that you can't believe this as it is taught in Scripture, and you can't embody it unless you are walking in the Spirit and not in the flesh. So today I just want to invite you to reconsecrate yourself and to ask God to fill you with his Spirit and ask him to make his vision of other people your vision of other people. You do not need to feel especially convicted about any of this because I guarantee it, it's already a problem. This is the trajectory of our hearts. It might be a little one. It might be a big one. Let's hit pause right now and ask Jesus, give me your vision of people. All day long, week after week, I look at the world with these eyes. Give me eyes to see them as you see them, Lord God. Let me reconnect this idea that I think we all think we believe back to the branch. And let me repent of regarding others according to the flesh. So that's a brief exposition of Proverbs 22.2. The rich and the poor meet, and the Lord is the maker of them all. For communion, I just want to read to you the rest of the passage that I cited from Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.16, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For he, for our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, would you come and celebrate all that Jesus has made possible for you and reconsecrate your heart, not only just to say you believe this idea, but to ask him, even as you partake in this thing that you do not deserve, to make it real for you in your heart. Come.